Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 41, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads, and he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the many the, the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Pastor and author Francis Chan once wrote, True faith means holding nothing back. It means putting every hope in God's fidelity to his promises. This morning we're wrapping up chapter 12 of the Gospel of Mark by, by looking at a story that I think that most of us tend to overlook. I mean, I know that I have. Like, I have been guilty of that. When I say most people tend to overlook, I just assume that you're probably like me. I've overlooked it many times. I've read this story many times, but I have just never really given it much thought. Right? The fact of the matter is it's a, it's a story that's easy to overlook. It's a short story, a short narrative and contextually, around this story, there's a lot going on. In fact, if you think about this, just before this story began a major section where the narrative you know, of Christ's life and ministry takes a dramatic turn. Right? Jesus goes from preaching in Galilee, and now he comes to Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, proclaiming that he is the Messiah and the King. And then he pronounces judgment upon Israel and her religious leaders, and this then finally puts him in direct confrontation with the religious leaders. To that point, his confrontation has been minor skirmishes, but now he's in direct confrontation, and this confrontation will, as we, will, we, we know and we will see later on, it will escalate, resulting in his death. So these men have come to him in this section, confronting him multiple times, and they try to trap him in his words so they can kill him. So all of this spans chapter 11 and most of chapter 12. And then, right after this, these few verses here, is the next major section, chapter 13, which is what's called the Olivet Discourse. This is where Jesus speaks prophetically about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and he talks about his return at the end of the age. By the way, chapter 13 is the section that many people will tend to focus on the most, because many people in Christianity today are really, really obsessed with the end times, especially now in 2020. In fact, some of the most some, some of the verses that are quoted the most out of this entire book, and, and especially chapter 13, are um, verses uh, 7 and 8 in 13. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. I, I can tell you, right, 
Like, I can't, I mean, like, there have, this year, when you look on social media, I can't even enumerate how many times I have seen these verses quoted in memes and texts, right? On Twitter and on Facebook. Every time there's a new conflict that breaks out somewhere else, somebody will post something about there will be wars and rumors of wars. In fact, I even have a friend of mine who's a Christian, that every time there's a big earthquake that happens in the world, especially ones in California like Ridgecrest, he will email me, you know, the details of the earthquake, and then he will say, what do you think about this? And then he will then put at the bottom of his email, you know, because there will be earthquakes in various places. And I'm like, you do realize that there have been earthquakes happening for 2,000 years in various places around the world, right? Just, and some of them have been really, really big. Who remembers, like, the Northridge earthquake? Right? Yeah, that one was big. Right? And there, guess what? There have been wars, right? Big catastrophic wars for 2,000 years, and there have been famines. And I'm not saying these aren't important indicators. What I'm saying is, is we need to be really careful, right? Not to become too focused on these things. Mark chapter 13 is important, but for many people, it becomes a big distraction in their reading and understanding of the rest of Mark and in the rest of the Bible, especially like this little story here. It's easy to get caught up in the big narrative stuff to miss this little stuff. But the truth is, this little story right here, because it is nestled between Jesus revealing himself as a Messiah and Jesus giving the Olivet Discourse, it is easy for the details of this story to get lost in the midst of it. Not to mention, right, a lot of, you know, a lot of happening in this fast-moving narrative. Like we said before, um, it's been said that Mark is a... Uh, is a passion narrative with an extended introduction. It moves really, really fast, and a lot happens in a short amount of time. In fact, we're at a place in the story where a lot's happening. If you remember, it's, it's still Wednesday, right? And by Thursday night, Jesus is going to be arrested, and on Friday, he's going to be tried. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be killed. He's going to be buried. Not to mention, there's a lot that takes place between this moment and then. Like, Jesus is going to get anointed at Bethany, he, he's going to they're going to he's going to institute the last supper and then there's going to be the famous prayer in 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 the garden of gethsemane All right so there's a lot to think about a lot of pieces and so it's easy to read through this story without stopping and thinking through why mark included this and why this text is so important to us i think i think it might be because we have a shallow view I think that might be the reason why we have a shallow view of this story and what it's about. In fact, I've heard people say that this text is about tithing and the importance of sacrificial giving. That this woman gave all that she had while the rich people gave out of their abundance. She was giving sacrificially unlike them. And, and believe me, I don't, I'm not denying the importance of, of giving as an act of worship. It is critically important. It's an important part of the Christian life. Right? And our giving should be meaningful and it should be sacrificial. Right? And, and I firmly believe that the Bible encourages everyone to give, even the poorest among us should give. Because giving is not simply just funding the activities of the church. It's an act of worship to God, an act of devotion to Him. It's about prioritizing Him first. Right? So I'm not saying those things aren't important, but what I will argue is that this text is primarily not about giving. It's actually about something else. This text actually is about something greater and much more foundational than that, as we will see. I think that we need to realize up front, though, is this little story is not some incidental sidebar 
It's not some meaningless set of details that just help the flow of narrative from one event to the next. This story right here is actually vitally important, and it is so for several reasons. Number one, the first reason why this is important is because the Bible itself tells us that it's important. You see, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 7, 16 and 17, that all Scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and reproof and for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture. Every bit of it. Including this is theonoustos. It's the Word of God. And as such, it is useful. It is beneficial for the building up and equipping of God's people and His church, which means every scripture, including this little scripture, these little incidental details, it seems, are important for, for our walk with God, for our walk with Christ. That's the first reason. The second reason why this is important is because the context itself says that it's important. Remember, we're at a part in the story of this gospel where everything is converging. Everything is moving towards a climax. Everything is building momentum upon itself. Everything is lending itself to the next event as we move closer. Every event is heightened in significance. In fact, I would say that we stand right now in this story in the shadow of the cross. Because Golgotha or Calvary is both figuratively and literally very near at hand at this point in the story. The third reason why this text is important is because Jesus himself says it's important. Notice that Jesus calls the disciples' attention to the widow, and then he says the words, Truly I say to you. And you have to understand, right? Everything, everything that Jesus says ultimately is important, but, but when he uses the expression, truly I say to you, you know that this is very, very important. He's asking us to pay close attention. And so we know this is important because the Bible says so, that context says so, and that Jesus himself says so. But the fourth reason why this is important is because the contrasts that this story builds say that this is important for us as well. You see, this woman, I don't know if you realize, this woman stands in stark contrast to just about everyone in this story since his disciples left and began their journey towards Jerusalem. Since that moment when they started going towards Jerusalem and marching towards the cross, she stands in stark contrast to basically everyone that we see. She stands in stark contrast with the scribes, which, by the way, if, if you remember, Jesus in the last text said that the scribes took advantage of widows for their personal gain. She stands in stark contrast to them. She also stands in stark contrast of all the religious leaders because they are influential. They are powerful. They have, you know, they have influence. They are well off. But, but this widow... She's among the weakest people in all of society. She has no influence. She has no power, no real voice, no resources. She's at the mercy of everyone. She's the complete opposite of them, politically speaking. She stands at the contrast of the rich young rule that we saw in chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. It's easy to forget the details of before, but Mark connects the dots. Right? If you remember, he, he was a man that, that came to Jesus and said, hey, what do I need to ha do to have eternal life? And Jesus basically reminded him of the law, and he said, I've done that. And then Jesus says, go and sell all that you have and give everything to the poor and then come and follow me. And what did he do? The complete opposite of what she did. He refused. 
The story, in this story we see, she gives everything. She's also in contrast to the disciples themselves as well. They were not following Christ simply because they trusted and depended upon him. And this is the thing that we need to understand, is their faith had to grow. Right? They didn't have perfect faith from the beginning. Right? We can't look upon these guys and say that these guys had it going on at that time. Right? Right? They did not trust and depend on Christ the way that they should have. They were following him initially, actually, because they wanted to be VIPs in the kingdom to come. Right? That's why the disciples would argue over things like, who's going to be the greatest in the new kingdom? That's why James and John actually came to Jesus and said, hey, can we be your right hand and left hand? You know, Why can't we sit with you when you come in the new kingdom? Because they were thinking physical, literal kingdom. They were seeking power, prominence, and pre- prestige. This woman simply came to worship God to the very best of her ability. She stands in stark contrast to them as well. She, started, she stands in contrast to everyone else, and that makes this story particularly interesting. But all the more, this contrast tells us this story has an important point to make. But we need to look closely, and we need to really understand. So turn with me to Mark chapter 12, and I want to walk you through this. And I want you to know this is a blessing to me to slow down and really dig into this story, because it really spoke to my heart. Mark chapter 12, verse 41, it says, And he sat down opposite the treasury. And the first thing I think you have to notice is the word and. And the reason why this is important is because this tells us contextually what's happening here. The word and signifies that this is a continuation of the same events. It was like, he did this and then he did that, right? This is the same day. This is a long day in you know, the book of Mark. If you remember the first 11 chapters covered like three and a half years, right? And we now are in, you know, chapter 11, almost to the end of 12. And it's just been since Sunday to, to, to Wednesday. Jesus just finishes teaching and he warns the people about false teachers. And he just finishes saying that the scribes were known for taking advantage of the widows. And right after that, Jesus goes to the court of the Gentiles, from the court of the Gentiles, where all this has been taking place, and he goes into the court of the women. This is continuing action. He moves from the very large court of the Gentiles, as we've spent a lot of time talking about, to the smaller court of the women. Now, why is he there? Well, Mark actually tells us he sat down and was watching people putting money into the offering boxes. Jesus was watching people. And I don't want to make too much of this theologically, okay? I do, again, I don't want to overstate this, but I think we should think about this. It should remind us of an important truth that God ultimately is always watching us. Even when we don't think he's watching us. These people did not know that the incarnate God was sitting there watching what they're doing. God is always watching, even when we think that, that, that people aren't paying attention to us, even when we think we're alone. God is watching and sees everything, even when we, when we quietly, in the middle of the night, sneak to the fridge when everybody else is sleeping. Come on, some of you all have been guilty of that. Even when we mutter something under our breath that we don't think anybody hears as we walk out of the room. God hears all that and sees that. Even when you are in traffic by yourself and you give that person the one finger greeting that's famous in California, God's watching that too. But Jesus is in the court of Gentiles and he's watching people 
right? And he's watching them go to the treasury, and he sees, it says, many rich people putting in large sums. You see, Jesus is in, the, in this quarter of women. He's there because, because the priests would, would set up these boxes to take offerings, right, from the Jews who had come to worship on the Passover, and I say Jews because you had to be a Jew to get into this part of the temple. You had the, the Gentile court where everybody was invited, but then to get into the, the, the court of the women, you had to be Jewish. Right? And there were a lot of Jews who had come to pay their respects. There were a lot of people that, were, that, were, that had, had made the pilgrimage to, to worship. And because of the Passover, they were going to be going through there in mass. And as a custom, the priest would set up these, uh, these boxes in this part of the temple, 13 trumpet-shaped boxes for people to come and put their various offerings in. And the different boxes had different significances. I won't go into all that detail. Just, just suffice it to say, there's this big, long production. They got 13 boxes and lots of people are walking by putting their money in. And Mark tells us that many rich people had come and put their offerings, and, and their offerings were, were big. They were giving large sums of money. And everyone knew that there was a lot, right? Everyone knew that they were giving a lot. Because first of all, they did look rich. The rich in that time made a point to look rich. They always looked the part. Stature was important in this part of the world. But it was also people knew they were giving a lot is because these coins were put in these brass boxes and those coins would make quite a bit of noise as they fell into the boxes, as they contacted the brass and contacted other silver coins. It's kind of like when somebody goes to a casino. Nobody would do that here, right? Um, but they go to the casino and they win big on a slot machine. There's always this distinct sound of money falling into a tray. And what happens? Everybody pays attention to it, right? You hear clink, 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 very, very loud, right? Well, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of like that. It draws people's attention, right? Which then, for us, sets up the contrast. Right? Because what, is, what does it say in, ver, in verse 42? It says, And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. So when you think about the contrast here, this is, right? You have these very rich people, right? And then you have the widow, Right? And she's not just a widow, she's a poor widow. She is impoverished. She is broke as possible, as she can possibly be. And then you have then the silver coins, which were, are worth a lot in, in, in for their weight. And then you have the, the small one centimeter wide copper coins that are of much less value. The, the silver coins were probably the, the temple half shekel, which, which was accepted for worship and was worth about one Roman denarius, which was the equivalent of a day's wages. And then you would have her two little copper coins together equaled one sixty-fourth the amount of just one of these denarius. And let me put this in perspective for you. If Let's just assume minimum wage is the standard for what you paid someone for a day's wages. What she then had to give was just over a buck fifty. That's what she had to offer. And the sound of the silver coins, in contrast, right, on the brass would have this heavy, deep clinking as it went in, but her two little tiny copper coins would have a little faint, high-pitched little tink. 
And so there's a distinct visible and audible contrast between this woman and the rest of these rich people that are there. And it says Jesus was there and watched all of this unfold. Now, after watching the rich people make their offering, and after watching this poor woman make her offering, it says that he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you. Okay. Jesus is paying very close attention to what's happening here. And he calls his disciples over to talk about what he has just witnessed. And what I need you to realize is that everything he just witnessed, everything I just talked about and described in, in, in for verse 41 and 42, really sets up the background and the context for the key point that Jesus is about to make. The key passage in this text is the second half of verse 43 and 44. It's the absolute key to this entire section. And I say this for two reasons. First of all, notice Jesus begins this private teaching moment with a very familiar phrase. Again, we talked about, truly I say to you. Or in the Greek, it is amen, I say to you. This phrase by itself should get your attention because not only is this an unusual way to, to begin a sentence with the expression amen, which we translate as truly, Jesus uses this formula over and over again throughout Mark and, and really throughout all of the Gospels to highlight something critical he wants to teach. For example, Mark chapter 3, verse 28. The first time we see him use this, it's an important point in the story. He says, Truly I say to you, all sin will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit has, uh, never has forgiveness but is guilty of eternal sin. I'm, I'm going to tell you, if that, there's a, a text that should get your attention, that you should pay attention to, it's that one, right? And Jesus is saying, you better pay attention here. Right? Mark chapter 8, verse 12 says, And he sighed deep in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Mark chapter 9, verse 1, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he said to them, or before the Mount of Transfiguration, he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, until the kingdom of God after, excuse me. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is, again, a prediction of the Mount of Transfiguration. Mark chapter 9, verse 41, For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, but will by no means lose his reward. And again in Mark chapter 10, verse 15, Mark chapter 10, 28 through 30, Mark chapter 11, 23. In fact, Mark chapter 11, verse 23 is worth noting. It's true they say to you, whoever says this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will will come to pass, it will be done for him. Again, another teaching that Jesus is saying, you need to really pay attention here. And he goes on and on and on and on. Jesus uses his expression in Mark at very critical moments to emphasize his teaching. And it's the same here. This is a critical teaching he's about to give. That's why he says, truly I say to you. That's the first reason why this is the key passage. The second reason that this is the key passage and this is so important is because it builds on all of the contrasts that we have been seeing and talking about to this point. These contrasts are not accidental. Right? God in his sovereignty and by the wisdom of his 
about the Holy Spirit has led Mark to, to build these contrasts. And, right, and Jesus in this text contrasts the rich people and their offering with the widow and her offering. Right? But it's not just her offering that he's contrasting. And this is the thing that we need to understand here. He's also contrasting the underlying motivation why they gave what they gave. You see, in light of that, this teaching here, this little section has huge implications for the kingdom of heaven itself and for us doing what this series is calling us to do, which is to do what? Follow Jesus. So let's look again at verse 43. And I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but if I lose you, just hang with me, okay? And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Now we read that, but I'm telling you that right there should make you stop and really think. I want you to hear what Jesus is saying. Again. I want you to hear his words. This poor widow, right? Not only is she a widow, she's poor. She's impoverished, right? This poor widow has put, put in more. He says more, some measurable quantity, more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. That right there is a stunning statement. Because it doesn't correspond to reality the way we understand it. But it's even stranger than that. Because look even closer. This is, this is where you have to shake the cobwebs loose and you have to think about what he's saying. He's not just saying that this poor woman's contribution is more than some rich person's contribution, right? He says his, that her contribution is more than all of their contributions, all of them combined. That's what the text says. When you diagram the sentence and you pull it apart and you look at the tenses, it says the poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing. Right? It doesn't say that she put in more than any of them. Right? It says that she put in more than all of them collectively. In other words, okay, this is building almost on the preposterous, right? In other words, the sum of what she gave is greater than the sum of all the rich people and what they contributed together. What? This statement would have caused Jesus' disciples to ask and, and should cause us to ask, how is that even possible? How is, how is that possible? Because that, that text said that the rich gave great sums of money. And she only gave two little tiny coins. And we're talking about copper little tiny, I mean, a centimeter wide. Half the diameter of a penny. But Jesus authoritatively says, truly I say to you, she gave more in quantity, more comparatively. How is that possible that she gave these people? let alone one of them. Well, Jesus in his classic style is using hyperbole here and using an extreme contrast and he's, you know, and he's doing so in an unexpected way to draw them into this lesson. Jesus is doing this so that we would open our eyes and that we would open our ears and our hearts in an effort to grasp the spiritual truth that he is teaching here. Now, now that he has our attention, let's look in, at the text and find out how this poor, nameless widow could outgive all of these rich people with her meager little offering. 
Jesus says the poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Or literally, that expression could, could say she gave her life, right? because she was basically giving the equivalent of a small meager meal, the last meal that she could afford. Now, a lot of commentators will say that this is an example of sacrificial giving and what it looks like. And I would agree that this is absolutely sacrificial giving because she is sacrificing, for sure. And I agree that God is worth sacrificing even when you're poor. He's worth sacrificing too. I believe that giving is an important discipline for everyone. Everyone should contribute materially to the work of the kingdom, even if it's a penny. Right? Everything counts in, in the eyes of God. Everyone should be giving. But understand, this is not just about giving. It's about something deeper. It's about something more foundational. Because if this was about sacrificial giving, she could have gave one of the coins to God and kept the other one and at least had something to eat. That still would have been a sacrifice for her and a greater sacrifice than everybody else was making. Because she would have given half of what she had. And if you don't think that that would have been a sacrifice, then take half of your money and half of your stuff and half of everything you own and give it away to someone else and tell me that's not a sacrifice. It is. It's a sacrifice for anyone. Even rich people would say that's a sacrifice. But here's what we need to see here. She didn't give half. She gave all. 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 All of it. Which means that tells us there's something more going on here. And, and there is because, because it's in the contrast. Notice the word but. The word but in the sentence here. They all contributed in their abundance, but contrasting them, she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. See what Jesus is saying here? There's something about her poverty that makes what she's giving more than and worth more than everything else that all these people are giving together. Though physically and materially and mathematically, they're giving way more than her. Spiritually speaking, she's giving more than them. So then what is it about her and what she gave, spiritually speaking, that makes what she gave so much more than what the others gave? Why is she being commended for what she's giving and not the rich. Because notice, it says she gave all that she had. Everything she had to live on. Literally her life. And you got to remember, this is the first century. This is why context is so important for us. There is no welfare system in the first century. There's no food stamps. There's no state aid. There's no support system. People literally could and did starve to death for the lack of food resources. Which means this giving this, of these two coins could literally cost her her life. But here this woman is knowing the potential consequences of giving her, the, the, her last bit of food money away, giving all that she had. Right? Why would she do that? Now we're beginning to see. Now we're beginning to see what makes her offering worth so much. What makes her offering worth so much? I want you to really hear me. What makes her offering worth so much is her faith. It is her faith. 
It is her faith in God that makes this gift so valuable. She gives all that she has because she trusts in God. Don't let that little truth, that, Im- that important little truth, pass by you here. That's why Jesus says she gave more. Her giving was motivated by her complete faith in God. And without faith, as it says in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please him. Didn't matter what you give him. It says, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Her offering was pleasing to Christ and pleasing to God and was deemed more valuable in the sight of God than the other gifts combined because of her faith that compelled her and pushed her forward to give that. The reason why she gave all she had is because of her faith, because she trusted in God. Because that's what faith ultimately is, trusting God. In fact, if there's something you want to write down, that would be it. Faith is about trusting God. Romans chapter 4, Paul quotes Genesis 15, verse 6, and says, If Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified by his faith. God was pleased with Abraham because of his faith. Abraham was not right with God because of his good works. Abraham was not right with God because of his offerings. Even the offering of his own son, he was right with God because he, and he was pleased with him because he believed God. He trusted God and his promises that God would do what he promised to do. That's what faith is. Faith is about trusting God. I know that seems simplistic, right? But Christian, there's a lot of people who claim the name of Christ. When you look at their life, they say, I trust God. But the evidence of their life sees something else. They think they, they trust everything else. They trust their money, they trust their retirement, they trust the government, they trust... Right. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This woman gave all that she had because she was trusting in God to provide for her, to take care of her. She knew God was there, even though that she couldn't see Him, and she knew God would provide for her needs, even though she couldn't tell you in the moment how that was going to happen. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. She came in faith, giving her offering because she trusted God to take care of her. She trusted in his mercy and his grace. Faith is about trusting God, and she did. But she didn't just trust God. She trusted him completely. Notice Jesus said that she gave out of her poverty everything that she had. All that she had to live on, literally her life. This reminds us of the quote of Francis Chan. It says, true faith means holding nothing back. It means putting every hope in God's fidelity to, do, to, I mean, to his promises. She held nothing back in her worship of God because she had complete faith in him. Faith is not just about trusting God. It's about trusting God completely. Or the second thing you could write down. It's about trusting God fully. She didn't worship God with half of what she had. She gave it all. 
She was all in. Why? Because she completely trusted him. That is the kind of faith that God calls all of us to, to completely trust him. And not just with part of our life, but with all of it. How many of us could say that we have that kind of faith? I mean, do we completely, totally, fully trust in him? And I say that to ask. I mean, we, this is where we need to examine our hearts, all of us. And I ask, if, if this is the kind of faith you have, then, then how much are you giving? And I only ask that because, because it's a sign, the measure of your faith. Do you give regularly? Do you give sacrificially? Or do you, or do you say, you know what? I'm gonna, when, I, when things get better, I'm going to give. When I have some extra, I'll give. Does your giving say, God, you are first in my life above all other things. God, I'm trusting you to take care of me. Does that reflect your faith? Now, I'm asking this question because the Bible itself poses this question. She gave in faith. And I want you to hear me on this. I'm not, I'm not telling you how much you need to give or what percentage a person needs to give. There's some people that will say tithing is ordered by the Bible. I don't actually quite see it quite in the New Testament. It's clear that way. I believe that, you know, the Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. Right? I'm saying that what you need to do, I'm not saying that you need to increase how much you give. I'm not saying that you need to do anything else differently. I'm just saying what you need to do is examine your heart and examine your own life. Does your giving in whatever amount or whatever proportion say, Lord, I trust you completely and you are the very first thing in my life. But as I said, this isn't just about giving. It's about trusting God in every part of our life. I think relevant for us today is to ask the question, are you trusting God in your marriage? I think there's a place that we need to depend upon God and rely on God and trust in God is marriage. Because marriage can be really hard. If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch, right? I know Christians who struggle in their marriages, and I know that there are some very tough times to get through. And then people will come to me for advice, and I'll usually tell them the exact same thing. God wants you to work it out. How do you know I'm, how do you know I'm married to the right person? Well, their name's on your marriage certificate. Right? I tell them you need to work it out. You need to trust in God. You need to depend upon Him. And when you don't think that you can make it, then you need to turn to Him and say, Lord, I need you to help me. I'm going to trust you. Do you really trust Him in your marriage? Or are we going to be like everybody else in the world and we're just going to trust our feelings and our emotions because we can't see what's going to happen tomorrow? Are you trusting Him with your future? I know many Christians who spend a lot of time and energy worried about money and retirement and making sure that they have everything you know, set aside. At the end of the day, right, because of their wanting to prepare for the future, they don't have a lot of time for service. They don't have very much time for evangelism. They don't have time to disciple their own kids. Right? They are trying to hold on to financial security. But do you trust God enough to say, Lord, you're first in my life. And I'll serve you, and I will contribute, and I'll do what I need to do, even if that means that I have to wait to retire. Even if it means I need to change careers. 
Even if that means that I've got to do something different like becoming a pastor, an evangelist, or a minister. Even if that means that you get to pull up stakes and move somewhere else like China. Are you trusting God with your future? Another area, I think, is are you trusting God in your relationships with other people? And I ask this question because I know a lot of Christians who, who worry a lot about what other people think about them. Whew. And social media does not help at all, right? I know a lot of Christians who tend to try to manipulate situations, to try to get what they want out of a situation, right? or what they think might seem to be right. I know Christians who will justify fibbing and gossiping and, and politicking in order to try to control outcomes because, because they think for some reason they are in control or they can be. I know some Christians who hold grudges and withhold forgiveness of other people because they feel like if I forgive, I'm losing or giving up some type of control. Are you trusting God in all of your relationships? with all of your family, kids, grandkids, parents, siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, go down the list. Are you trusting God with your friends? Are you trusting God with your neighbors, even that one that plays the music way too loud, way too long, or those neighbors who are setting off fireworks in the middle of the night? <laughs> we all know about that, right? Okay. How about your coworkers? One of the things I've learned over my, over my years of pastoring here about the nature of relationships at, at Borax is I think the words that are tossed around a, a lot with words like toxic, <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, difficult. Are you trusting God in your relationship with your coworkers? Or how about your enemies? I mean, if, if you have been with me through Mark, what we have seen over and over again, right? And especially if you've been through the New Testament, you know that God is calling us to love everyone, including our enemies. Faith in God is about completely trusting Him in everything. And even the really, really hard things in really, really hard times. Okay. I want you to notice the difference between her gift and everyone else's gift. They gave out of their abundance. She gave out of her poverty. Because another way to look at this is, is that they worshiped God or they trusted God out of their abundance. But she worshiped God and trusted God in her poverty. You see, faith is not only about trusting God and trusting Him completely. Faith is about trusting God completely, even in the worst of times. The fact of the matter is, I want you to hear me. You've heard me say this before, but I'll say it again. It is easy to praise God when the sun is shining. It is easy to give when there's a lot in the bank account. It is easy to worship the Lord when everything's okay in your life and no one's sick. It's easy to come to church when you like everybody in the room. It's easy to love those who love you first. It's easy to be obedient when the task is pleasant and fun and challenging and exciting. It's easy to do what God says when it doesn't cost you anything. It's easy to have faith in God when things are good, like these rich people. Giving was easy for them. Wasn't a big deal. But what about when things are hard? What about when you're flat broke? What about when, when you were deeply hurt emotionally? 
What about when your heart has been shattered into a billion pieces and you can't even even express in words how you feel? What about the times when your heart is shattered so bad that you think that it's not even possible that you will ever feel joy again? What happens in your deepest, darkest, worst case scenario when that happens? Are you trusting God with everything you are and everything that you have like this poor widow? In the darkness, do you still trust him? I mean, we love the passages of Scripture when things are hard that say, God is love. I will never leave you or forsake you. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Or even, you know, Romans 8, 28, my favorite. All things work together for good for those who love God and called according to his purpose. But do we still find joy in the scriptures? Like 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, we say, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Does that make your heart sing in times of trouble? How about James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4? Count it all joy, my brothers, all of it, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, by the way, faith and the authenticity of your faith is never tested until there is a trial. Faith is not really faith until it's actually tested. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. There's a promise that even the suffering that we go through and the worst times that we go through actually benefit us and grow us. More explicit in what Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. The youth group and I have been through this text and, and I'm telling you, like when we went through this, there was tears, but they, start, they saw a new sight of God in the process. Paul says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, Paul says, the worst that happens to us, the worst possible scenario is light and momentary afflictions. For the light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen. There's a theme here. Not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do we trust and worship God in our poverty? Do we trust God and worship God in the darkness? Because that's the point of this text. This is the point that it's been building up to. And this reminds me of a story I've told before, but I have to tell it again because I think it stands in clear, as a clear example of, of somebody that I've heard about living this out. I was at a men's conference years ago, and uh, there was a, a particular subject on, on biblical fatherhood, which I'm obviously interested in. 
And, and the man who actually gave the, the class was not the author of the book that, that, uh, that I picked up, but he was somebody who knew him and was in ministry with him, and he told his, his own story. And he said that he was somebody who, he was somebody that said that uh, he went through Bible school, and when he was in Bible school, he met his wife. And they fell deeply in love, and they suddenly had this vision together that they are going to get through Bible school together, they're going to get married, and they're going to do ministry together. You know, they're going to serve God all their lives together. They thought, what a glorious experience, and they were going to raise their kids up in the admission of the Lord. And they got married, they had some kids, and things were going, going wonderfully until her cancer diagnosis. And so they prayed, and they're like, Lord, we're going to trust that you're going to heal her and get her through this. But then as time went on, it became very apparent that this is worse than they expected. And her, her survival chances were really, really low. And he's beginning to think, why are you doing this to me, God? Why? Right. And then one night he said, he's in bed trying to get some sleep. And then he wakes up hearing what sounds like an animal that's suffering and he realizes that it's his wife in the bathroom and she's, she's throwing up because of the chemotherapy. And then he hears her saying something. And here he is angry, bitter, frustrated. Why is she having to go through this? And then he hears her and he realizes she's praying. And she says, if you can be glorified in this Lord, be glorified. She had a clear view of what her hope was, completely trusting God in the very darkest moments of her life. She did eventually pass away, and he did get remarried, and you could see God's hand in all of that. But the point is still the same. And that's the point of this text, but, but this point is building up to something. Because not only is this woman a demonstration of what faith is, trusting God completely in the worst circumstances, but she is an illustration of what is about to come. Because things are going to get really, really hard for these disciples in about 24 hours. They're going to lose Jesus. They're going to be arrested. They're going to be taken. He, he's going to be taken from them. And all of their hopes... And all of their plans for the future and all the things that they're holding on to and all the dreams and expectations that they have of what life is going to be like in the coming weeks, all of that is going to be taken from them. Their vision for the future is going to be taken and shattered on the floor. And they will be bankrupt emotionally and spiritually. And their faith, unlike this woman's faith, their faith will wane. As we know, right? Peter denies Jesus. The disciples ran for cowards. While Jesus, on the other hand, completely and totally trusts the Father. And though that he will go to the, the garden and he will ask, he will say, Lord, if there is another way, if this cup can pass from me, not as I will, but as you will. And in turn, he will give everything that he has, his very life, in sacrifice to God on our behalf. 
You see, this is not just some incidental teaching about giving. This is Jesus drawing their attention to what saving faith looks like. A faith that they don't fully possess yet in that moment. They believe and they are saved because of God's grace. But their faith isn't there yet. But it will become a faith. Because after the resurrection... That faith will pro- that 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 incident will prompt these men to be completely different and to sell out and to be all in and even give their own lives and all that they have for that faith and for the gospel of Jesus Christ that changed the entire world. Faith is trusting in completely, trusting God completely, even when everything is dark. Faith is giving all that you have. To trust, to faith is giving all that you have to God, trusting in His promises. And so I ask you, do you possess that kind of faith? Look in the mirror of the Word of the Lord and ask yourself, is that who I am? And today I want to talk specifically to those who have never come to faith. To those who have never made a point, who have never professed Christ those who have never actually turned to Jesus in faith and repentance, but now recognize that they need God. But I'm also talking to those people who maybe at some point in your life, because you went to a service and you walked an aisle and you made a profession of faith, but you realize right now the faith that you have is not a saving faith. You're not all in trusting God completely. You have not come to him saying, I'm trusting in you and you alone, Lord. I would like to just take a moment and share with you the basis of that faith and the basis of really everything else, everything that we do here every Sunday. The basis of why First Baptist Church has been here for 82 years and will continue to be here as long as this is the basis, and that is the gospel. The thing that we need to come to terms with and understand is that there is a God and that he created all things and he is holy, sovereign, and just, and he created you to have a relationship with him. But that relationship has been severed because of our sin. I don't have to convince you that you're a sinner. Every one of us understand that we are, by our nature, sinners. Though we might try to do good, and because we're made in the image of God, we're capable of some good. Ultimately, at our core, we are still broken, and we know it. And that sin separates us from God. In fact, the Bible tells us uh, that sin, because of it, the, the wrath of God abides on us. And then at one day, if we are in our sin when we die, then we will be judged and we'll be sent to hell because of our sin. And what we need to realize is that sin cannot be paid for by our own efforts. You will never be able to on your own, by your own good deeds, by your own following the golden rule, by trying hard, by giving a lot, by loving a lot. You will never ever make yourself right with God by your own efforts. It's impossible. Isaiah tells us that our, our, our best efforts are but filthy rags before God. That is the inescapable bad news. That is the news that you must come to terms with. But it's the good bad news that leads us to the good news. And the good news is this. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, into the world. And he lived a perfect life that you could not live. Fulfilling the law that you couldn't fulfill. And then he went to the cross to pay a penalty you couldn't pay. And on the cross... On the cross, an exchange happens. Your sin is cast upon Christ and he gets full credit for your sin, even though he did no sin. 
and his righteousness is given to you as if you were perfect now, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You receive that by faith. Christ died on the cross to, to make that a reality. He suffered and gave it all to make that a reality. And he died and was buried. But then three days later, he rose again, proving that he is what he claimed to be God in the flesh and that what he did actually worked and he has the power to do what he promised to do, which is to save you from your sins. And all you need to do, all you need to do is repent and believe the gospel. That means turn away from your self-righteousness. Turn away from your attitude that somehow you're going to make yourself right before God. Turn from your attitude that I don't need God and turn to him and cast yourself upon him like this woman with everything that you are and all that you have and say, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to make it because I know who I am, but I'm trusting in you. I'm wholly, completely, totally, 100% trusting in you and you alone for my salvation because all I have is you. As the bridge of the song that we sang today, all we have, all we need, and all we want is you. Repent and believe the gospel. The Bible says if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not just Savior, but Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And my urgency, my urgent message to you, if you have not, is repent and believe the gospel. And if you need to know more about how you can do that, then please get a hold of me or one of the deacons here in the church, and we'd be happy to walk you through that. And if you are walking with God, then your life is still the exact same. You have nothing still to offer God on your own except your continued faith in him. And that's what we do is we continue to walk by repentance and faith. We continue to trust wholly in him. That is the gospel. The gospel is not, okay, now, Lord, you saved me. Now I've got to work and clean myself up. No, the gospel is you were, you were dependent upon God to get saved, and you remain forever dependent upon God to continue to save you through sanctification. Turn to him. Repent and believe the gospel. But let us all examine our own hearts to see if our faith is an all-in faith like, like this poor widow, who now is not just some nameless, faithless figure to you. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.